let's have a further word of prayer. Loving Father, we want to bless you once again this morning with a grateful heart. We give thanksgiving unto you for the way you've led us this morning and always. Great is your faithfulness, O God. We sing praises unto your name because you are worthy. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for keeping us, Lord, safe in you. We bless your name, Lord, for you are the true, good, chief, and great shepherd of the flock, the builder of your church and the keeper of it. Praise and glory be given to you, Lord. You send your word and your word heals us. Your word converts souls. Your word is simple, Lord, and give wisdom unto us. We pray that the holy and eternal spirit of the promise of God will guide us and lead us and the Lord keep us from the spirit of error. We give our heart unto you and we pray that, Lord, you lead us safely through your green pastures. Praise and glory be given to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise the Lord. So today we are continuing uh, the mini-series we started last time, that is um, Renewing Perspective and Perceptions. So we're going to continue. I promise to you that we look at some applications, about eight of them, to see the implication, the impact of renewing our perspective and perceptions. So we've said in the past that this very, very brief letter has had an unprecedented impact in terms of social justice throughout ages, more than any other book in the Bible uh, in the fight against slavery. We are called to be transformed by the renewing of our mind in order to be able to discern that which is good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. So there is a necessity, a need to be transformed. And the transformation has to be deep and complete from our heart and mind in order to be able to discern the ways of God, including discerning the body of Christ. Our main reading today will be five lemon. That's the only way I can manage. Five lemon. Good. So we're going to read five lemons. There's only one chapter. So we read from five lemons. Paul, a prisoner of Christ, Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to five lemons, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Athea, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4. I thank my God making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. Verse 7. For we have great joy and consolation in your love, because the heart of the saint has been refreshed by you, brother. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to commend you on his fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you being such a one as Paul the age, I now or I, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Verse 10. 
I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I am sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. Verse 14. But without your consent I wanted to do nothing that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. Verse 15. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Verse 17. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he had wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay. Not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides. Verse 20. Yes, brother. Let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Verse 22. But, meanwhile, also prepare guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner, in, Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. About twice in this passage you find the expression refresh in verse 7. Because the heart of the saint has been refreshed by you, brother. And somewhere else he says refresh. Refreshing someone's soul. Refreshment. Refreshing someone. Refreshing the soul of the brethren. The heart of the brethren. It is everyone's responsibility to make sure that we are refreshing one another. One another. It's very, very important. You see, the reason the reason Paul is rejoicing in verse 7 we have great joy and consolation in your love because the heart of the saints have been refreshed by you. Do we rejoice when other people's hearts are refreshed? Do we rejoice when the Lord does something good in someone else's life? Do we rejoice when we see good progress in other people's life? What is that which rejoices? Paul rejoiced because of 
Philemon commitment to God, but also because of his attitude for refreshing the heart of the brethren. It's a responsibility. Last time we made an application from the book of uh, Philemon and we drew the first lesson which was the Christian's approach to social justice. And we concluded that social justice from a Christian perspective it's based and motivated by God's love. When we do charitable work, when we give to charities, we are motivated and led by the love for Christ. I told you the other day that, in fact, the whole world of charitable work was started, initiated by Christians as a response to what Jesus Christ said. You know, I was in prison and you come and see me, I was lacking and you come in, etc. So the believer thought that they could not just be indifferent and turn a blind eye to the suffering of people. In fact, the gospel goes with the help. Help for the poor, praying for the sick, etc. Unfortunately, in these days, prayer has become a crime and we are intimidated and even scared to pray in hospital. But there were ministries in hospital where people prayed in hospital. You know, in hotel, the Gideon's ministry, everywhere people have been saved just by finding that blue New Testament in three different languages was there in every drawer in hotel. Now it's become a battle even to see. I told you the other day that uh, one person, Rich Dawkins, once said um, the Bible teaching is dangerous to children. The Bible has become dangerous to children. That's how bad things have become now. I told you the other day, I quote for you, uh, someone who said, um, young people are leaving the church because of the biblical morality or sexuality. Young people are not happy with that, they're leaving the church. What does the Bible say? How shall a young man uh, cleanse the way by taking heed of the word of God? So you have the, a direct contradiction between what we hear and what God says. Who are we going to choose? What are we going to teach our young people? Because they have that dichotomy, that confusion that is there. And that is an attempt to indoctrinate uh, our children and young people and say, oh, you see, uh, the church is preaching a very old morality, those are old issues, you know, this is a modern time, etc. The church is outdated, etc. But the word of God is permanent. You know what? When Jesus Christ initiated and taught the Lord's Prayer, it's been a long time some people were getting very nervous with the Lord's Prayer and say, oh, that's a Catholic prayer. No, it's not a Catholic prayer. It is in the Bible. Now, because the Word of God is permanent and eternal, God foresaw so already that one day in Great Britain they will be looking for a God who is gender neutral and he gave the Lord's Prayer. So today, more than ever, the Lord's Prayer is relevant. Amen. So we say that the approach, the Christian approach to fight slavery was that they will put the gospel uh, at the forefront and teach people and very, very uh, wisely uh, influence the people who are becoming believers, the masters as well as slaves, you know, through the understanding of the biblical, the Bible, the biblical teaching, people will change, will renew their mind and begin to consider everyone else as a human being made by God of one blood. 
and that will begin to soften the heart of their slave masters until they begin to understand. And the slave, but the reason Colossians chapter 1, don't, don't turn to eat a quote for you. Colossians chapter 4, verse 1, we quoted this last time. Masters, give your born servant what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven, you see. So that was the approach that was used. And because it was an institution, you know, it was institutionalized slavery. So there's no way a Christian could revolt or take people to the street, etc. They had to go softly by the gospel, persuasion. Not forcing. Those are two things. Well, I remember sometimes, see here, Paul is really appealing, appealing to Philemon. It's not imposing, it's appealing. I beseech in some version. You know, when we organize the work of the Lord and we approach people to ask them to be involved in work, we appeal to them, we try to persuade them. That's what we do. We don't force them. We explain them the benefit of being involved. So you see people coming to the ministry, but there's, there's a work in the background. So much prayers, you know, people are busy, people are serving God everywhere. You know, here, in families, in many places. Then we need people to serve God here as well. So we approach them very, very wisely and, uh, and, 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 and try to persuade them to say, look, there is this need in the church, would you, would you, and would you put in prayer? Sometimes it takes a long time. It's appealing, beseeching, not imposing to people. That's the biblical approach. And we praise the Lord for that. So, social justice. In the Bible, in um, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, we are commanded not to be unequally yoked with the unbelievers. Not to be unequally yoked. Oh, usually, it's a very symmetrical work. You know, to put a yoke on two animals is something absolutely symmetrical. But the Bible is saying, do not be unequally yoked. If it's unequally yoked, there is imbalance. It won't work properly. It won't fulfill the same plowing, the same work that is being done because it is unequally yoked. And we are warned that we should not be unequally yoked with the unbelievers. That is, if we do what they're asking us to do without discernment, then we're wasting our time. Remember, I'm talking about social justice here. The Bible says there's no, uh, there's no fellowship uh, between righteousness and lawlessness. There's no communion between light and darkness. There's no accord between Christ and Belial. There's no uh, part between believer and unbeliever. And there's no agreement between the temple of God and idols. Hmm. Okay. Let's talk about saving the world environment first. Well, it's a good faith, you know. I'm not against you. You love plants, you love flowers, that's fine. You lend your money to support that, etc. But the big organizations who are doing that, the founders of them, there is ideological, ideological motives or motivation behind that. Most, if not of them, worship nature. So for them, the saving of nature is actually an act of worship. We hear about Mother Earth. I remember once in America there was a catastrophe. I think it was a wildfire in California. And people were running all over the place and one school was touched. And I think the headmaster came, you know, and, and, and he was interviewed and he said, well, there's nothing we can do. Mother Earth has decided. 
you hear about Gaia, you hear about Mother Earth, all sorts of is ideological, it's worshipping the creation rather than the creator. Yet you find Christians completely ignorant of what is going on, landing all the life and effort and everything into that. We have to be fighting with discernment these things. Social justice is good, but we also have a higher calling of saving people and maintaining God's holiness and upholding his name here. That's our first mission. Otherwise God will save us and take us away from this world. The reason why he's keeping us here is because through you and I, he's exhorting people and saving people. That's why we are here. Without people who brought me to Christ, I wouldn't be saved. There must be someone who labored, who prayed for you, for you to become a Christian. That's the reason we are here. So we should not be diverting our effort only for the sake of this world. Well, fighting for social justice is good, it's commendable, nothing against that, but we need to have discernment. Something really sad is going on in Ukraine, we all know about that, etc., but the only version we have is the one given by the BBC and the world media. Many Christians are giving in fundraising, that's a good thing to do. But who talks about churches that are being destroyed there? Who talks about the unfairness that is being shown, discrimination against the Christian there? Completely left aside, who talks about it? Church is being willingly destroyed by people there. Who talks about it? It's all Ukraine, Ukraine, but oh, uh, what about your brethren? Northern Nigeria, Eastern Congo, millions of Christians being killed. Who is talking about it? Nobody. Ukraine. I have nothing about Ukraine, I'm just telling you. To be discerning. Who will talk about those things? Nobody. You hear, you know, out of word of mouth, you know, from time to time, a small WhatsApp message, oh, in talking, you know, this happened to believe, you know, there is a big disaster recovery, a lot of fundraising being made for Turkey. Are you sure that your bread are being served? Because they are the outcast of the society. What do we do? Discernment is needed. So, you see, something that started many, many, many centuries ago under the Roman Empire, because at that time, even Israel was under the ruling of the Roman Empire, the uh, church leaders and the beliefs in the church applied that approach of uh, per, uh, persuading through the gospel, etc., and eventually, uh, I think in 17th, 18th century, yes, it must be 18th century, I think, uh, when slavery was abolished here, 18 or 19, I think it's 18, uh, because it was around the time of the John Wesley, the Weber Force, etc. So those people again had a very clear strategy between them, you know, some fighting from within the parliament, some from without, from outside, until by God's grace that evil was abolished. Mm. But unfortunately, Christianity is always put on trial. As promoting slavery, nowhere in the Bible does Christianity promote slavery. Nowhere. Plus the fact that there is a confusion sometimes. Um, the word slavery is used interchangeably with servants sometimes. So Christianity never supports evil. When you read in the Bible, there is always an implication 
that slavery was harsh and was an evil thing. Because of the Bible, believers understood that all men were made of one and same blood. Acts 17, verse 26, it is in the Bible. One blood, one color, everybody. Well, in fact, the songwriter Charles Wesley speaks of the helpless, Adam's helpless race in his song. So we all descended of Abraham, and because we descended of, a of Adam, sorry, we all under the guilt of condemnation, therefore needing God's salvation. No one is above the other one. There's only one soul. Everyone will stand before God for himself, but Christ died for everybody. But increasingly, I'm aware that animals are being treated like human beings. Remember that story? For people were, you know, having the Holy Supper and everyone bringing his rabbit and his cat and said they are Christian dogs. <laughs> Things are going all over the place, isn't it? Christ died for dog and, and, and rabbit. I was asking one lady uh, at work somewhere, I said, how many children do you have? She said, I've got one girl, one rabbit, and one cat. <laughs> First Timothy 6.2, Philemon 1.16, uh, believers understood that we were all redeemed by the same Savior and we were brethren. Background, education level, skin colors, completely irrelevant in the body of Christ. Redeemed by the same blood of Jesus Christ. We are brethren. Rich, poor, it doesn't matter. Tall, short, doesn't make any difference. Brothers and sisters in Christ. We share the same purpose, we all suffer the same um, reproach for Christ. And we have the same glorious destiny, all of us. So let us try to forgive one another, to bear for one another. It doesn't matter uh, or if, if we've wronged one another. It doesn't matter. Just we humans leave behind, trust the Lord, be strengthened in His mind, and let us move forward with God. And He will help us. That is the law of Christ. Second lesson. So that was the first lesson in the, in the area of social justice. Second lesson is the reality of imputation. Now, imputation is a statement attributing something dishonest, especially criminal offense, a, form, a formal charge of wrongdoing brought against a person. The act of imputing blame or, or, or guilt. So that's imputation. We can see this principle applied in the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'm going, take him in the hand, and I will pay for it. That's imputation. What he owes, I will pay for it. Isaiah 53, verse 4 to 6. Surely has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him as stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That imputation. Philemon presents a good picture of the redemption of our souls. He was the owner of, slave, of the slave, and he was the one offended. 
Onesimus had to return to his owner and master, with Paul taking the full responsibility to pay for any wrongdoing or debt. Onesimus is now called beloved and faithful. Very risky, you know, to send Onesimus back to an angry master. You know, Paul had to take that full responsibility. Whatever he's done to you, put on my account. That what Jesus Christ has done. We were alien, rebellious toward God, strangers to the life and commonwealth of God. But Jesus Christ has said, because of me, Father, forgive them. Because of me, I'm carrying all these things for them. Receive them, forgive them. And we come back to God because of Jesus Christ, who has reconciled us to God. That's what he's done. So Philemon is a good, good example of uh, the doctrine of imputation and redemption. When someone else lays life in order for us to be freed and to be saved and received by God. That's the second lesson from the book. Third lesson from the book. I touched this last time because I jumped to this. I wasn't sure that I was going to have enough time to conclude, but I jump to this and coming back very quickly, skip through this. Third lesson, perspective and perceptions. Let me pause and ask you a question. Do these things make sense to you? What I'm talking about here? Yes? yes. Good. Because I'm not here to hear myself talking. I want to talk to the church. And the word of God is sent for a purpose. So I'm not here in an academic exercise. Yes, I'm, I may from time to time quote academics here, but that's not the purpose of what I'm doing here. I want to preach the word of God unto transformation and renewing. Unto more Christ-likeness as we move forward. Otherwise we have no hope. Only the word of God which is the sword of the Spirit we speak of the Spirit, but how does the Spirit work? The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. That's the only hope. Husband and wife, the hope is here. We'll be talking about humility today, God willing. Because we need humility between us, between husband and wife, etc. Verse 10 to 11. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. By the way, Onesimus means profitable. He was useless, but now is profitable. Even to the great apostle Paul, Onesimus has become profitable. And there is a tradition, I haven't had enough reading whether it's true, but there is a tradition saying that Onesimus had become a bishop in Ephesus. If that is true, that shows you the transforming power of the gospel. Not to mention Saul of Tarsus, who say, I have become a defender of the very faith I sought to destroy. What about Clyde, Staples, Lewis, C.S. Lewis? One of the most rebellious people. Very bright man, rebellious to God, had become 
the first class defender of the Christian faith. What about Nikki Cruz? Has become an evangelist and a witness of Jesus Christ. What about you? And me? The transforming power of the gospel. People who were idol worshippers, people who were lost in darkness, the light of Christ has shone in their life. Free. God sent his son in order to die. Not for properties, because that's what slaves are considered as properties. There is a very, very difficult passage in the book of Leviticus. I'm still looking into it. I won't tell you which one it is. Maybe you know it yourself. I'm still looking at it. It's very, very difficult. But God did not die for properties. He died for Adam's helpless race for human beings. If we consider other people to be properties, there is no way we can truthfully and meaningfully preach the gospel. It's fake, it's hypocritical. Unless we believe and understand that everyone is a human being, then we understand that Adam's sin, everyone is under the same guilt, we all need the same then we can meaningfully preach the gospel. Renewing perceptions and perspective. It's important. You can't love without this thing. If you, this is the fourth time I'm quoting husband and wife today, because that's the center of everything. I've heard uh, some some argument when the husband or the wife said to his spouse, uh, I deserve better. <laughs> I deserve better. Oh, oh dear. And then from time to time, I love you. Oh. <laughs> love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. I love you. I don't deserve you. I deserve better. Oh. Humility is the basis of everything. You see, having a high opinion of ourselves will always trap us. Humility is a key feature of love. Christ said, I am, in French, say, je suis doux et humble de cœur. In English, I'm lowly of heart and gentle. That's Christ. Yes, yes, Christ is love and gives love. But you see, he's lowly, he's humble. Without humility, everything else is fake, including our fellowship, relationship, service for the Lord, fake. Because God resists the proud. Husband and wife, God will help us very short. We'll be having family forums where we talk about our stuff, husband and wife. 
in the church. And we share things, we have, you know, husband and wife coming to teach us how they live these things in their family, etc., to move the church forward so that newer generation can learn as well, as well as older generations, all of us. There is no trophy for humility. For only one person can say, I am humble, is Jesus Christ. Well, I remember one elder was teaching somewhere, and uh, after the teaching, someone approached him and said, oh, the sermon was very good. And he said, I bless the Lord that my strength is my humility. <laughs> I'm sure you get it. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for the gift of humility you've given to me. Oh, <laughs> Thanks, life is good. <laughs> you see, humility is very, very deep. Jesus Christ said, I am gentle and humble in heart. Why? Because humility operates inside. Nobody can see humility. And from time to time, we can see some fruit of it, but that's not humility. What we can perceive is simplicity. We can perceive simplicity. We can see modesty. Those are the things you can see from outside. But humility? Hmm. Only God can see. Here is a question for you. How many of us would say, without the Bible, just looking at David's life, how many of us would say David was humble? Just look at his life. No one. Someone even said, if David was a man after God's own heart, then I doubt that God. You see that? But God looked and he said, that is the kind of heart I am after. Hmm. When Nathan came and talked about, you know, the death of the wife of Uriah, David did not say, oh, you're going to go to prison and make king. David repented, bitterly confessed, and then triumphantly, when he realized that he was forgiven, blessed has the man whom transgression is forgiven. He appreciated, he knew what it meant to be at old in conflict with God. He knew what it meant to be the fellowship with God to be broken. And he said, my bones were being consumed. He felt the broken relationship with the father, even in his mouth. He didn't say, well, it doesn't matter, it's just a mistake, you know. It's a mistake, God is love, you will understand. If you were God's enemy, you were automatically David's enemy, automatically. David loved God. And God sees that heart, he said, I found David, the son of Jesse. A man after my own heart. That is humility. Because humility is before God, not before man. Renewed perspective and perception. You see, there's a man in the Bible called Peter. Peter, the apostle. Well, Peter had an issue in the church. 
You know, he had a double standard for the Gentile, for the Jewish, Jewish believers. You know, he, oh, one day he learned the hardest way. In fact, in Acts 10, chapter 10 and chapter 11, that resulted in a renewed perception of God's grace toward humankind. In Acts 10, verse 34, Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. He learned the hard way. God said, Kill all those unclean animals. Killed it. No, no, nothing. Unclean has ever entered my mouth. And the Lord opened his eyes. And he said, I perceive that God shows no partiality. I perceive renewing perception. Now, Peter will look at other people as people precious in the sight of God. He will even go into opposition with other fellow believers. Because in the house of Cornelius, as Peter was talking, the Holy Spirit fell on people, and people with prophecy were speaking in tongues, and Paul said, baptize them. And other people opposed that. And Peter said, no, we cannot refuse, withhold baptism to the people who have received the same spirit and renewed perception and perspective. And he declared, I perceive that God shows no partiality. That's what we need. I mentioned to you from Mark chapter 8 verse 22, remember, I'm going to just uh, profess that for you, the blind man uh, at Bethsaida who could not see and was seeing other people as moving trees. Moving trees, that's quite serious. What do you see? Oh, I see, but they just like moving trees. And I quote to you uh, from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. I see people, they look to me as trees walking. You see, I like that verse, they look to me. So he's not looking at people from God's perspective, no. He's looking at people from his perspective. They like moving trees. No. Other versions say, I see them like trees moving around without purpose. They're just moving. No, 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 no. That is not Christianity. Now, humility, seeing other people like human beings created in God's image. You see, my tendency this afternoon here is to talk about husband and wife all the time, but uh, that will come. Because that's where we need to emphasize there. There was a pastor, a senior pastor in, uh, in France, he said to us that... Uh, when well, it happens to him that uh, you know he doesn't look at his spouse as uh, as if she was there, so when he passes, he can just push as a you know is a is a table or something like that. Boom, and he passes. Moving trees, haughtiness, high opinion of ourselves. We need to be very very careful. There is no love without humility. Love without humility is fake. Oh, 
What do we say then? We talk a lot about love in the church. But you see, love has its own features in the Bible. I quoted some of it for you. Love does not parade itself. Love is not easily provoked. Love rejoices in truth. What unites us here should be the truth, the love for God truth. Not Hollywood perception or definition of love. The biblical understanding of love has its own features. If you love me, keep my commandments. Those who go to hell, go to hell because they rejected the truth of God. You have to be very careful of which love we're talking about here. We're going to stop there today. One day the Lord will give enough time. <laughs> we have eternity in front of us, but uh, there won't be need for preaching there, only praising the Lord. That means there will be part three. One man was a trade, a slave trader. But he himself was saved by Christ and realized that he was himself a slave who was redeemed by God. And one day he stood the way I'm standing here on Sunday. After preaching, the Lord inspired a song. He realized that he himself needed salvation. We're going to close the service singing together Amazing Grace from Joe.